Our sermon today is from Psalm 130. A song of ascent. Out of the depths I call to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word do I wait. My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchman for the morning, the watchman for the morning. O Israel, wait for Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We're picking up the psalm today at verse 5. As you will remember, we went through the first four verses a few weeks back, and then we considered what the depths are and how the natural depths reflect something of the depths of despair we all, as Christians, go through with our sin. We then considered how God can and will hear us at the bottom of the ocean, a place where no one else can hear us, at the moment we cry for help. And he does this because with him there is forgiveness. He pulls sinners from the depths of their iniquity, from the roots of the mountains, and causes them to stand in the fresh mountain air of forgiveness. And as a result, we live in the fear of the Lord, obeying his commandments from the heart. There was a lot there in those first few verses, but today we're going to zoom right out again and consider one big truth that can be drawn from the middle of the psalm. That big truth is the need to wait on the Lord. Verse 6 says, My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, the watchman for the morning. The call to wait on the Lord, as you know, is throughout the psalms. Psalm 37 says, Be still in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out schemes of wickedness. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at his place and he will not be there. So we wait on God to act when wicked men are hurting people and seem to be prospering in their way. The Psalms also reflect on the length of time the people of God are being called to wait. How long, O Lord, is a common refrain. So since waiting is a major part of our God-inspired songbook, something we should be regularly singing about, it reflects to us something of who our God is. God obviously wants us to wait. Often he doesn't act immediately. So I thought it would be a valuable thing for us to meditate upon this reality that God wants us to wait. Because our flesh is full of impatience, it doesn't want to wait. But true patience is a fruit of the Spirit. We can be patient with His Spirit in us. The Spirit can and does cause the Christian to wait well. So today I want us to consider how the Spirit produces this fruit in us. He does it by giving us a settled understanding and a love for how God works over time. We must love God's timetable. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. The impatient understand God to be slow. They do not love his timetable. 
but because God makes us wait, it does not mean that he is slow. He is never too early or too late to fulfill his promises. His timing is perfect. And as we wait for his promises to be fulfilled, we must trust that his timetable is good. But humans are dull. As I said, in our flesh, we are full of impatience. We don't trust God's timing. So if we want to experience true contentment and the joy of the Lord, we need to understand our sinfulness, our fleshly inclination to impatience, and put it to death. Before we consider the meat of this text, I want us to zoom way out and let's first consider how God has baked into the fabric of reality the need to wait. There isn't just a need to wait for redemption, which is what our psalm is about. We need to wait for pretty much everything. This meditation will dovetail nicely with some of what Non has been teaching on vocation. Consider lumber. Yes, that wonderful fruit of the tree trunk. As you know, I've been really enjoying slicing up redwood and lucitanica trees for the past few months. We've been cutting great big slabs out of 50-year-old redwoods. And as we flip that first perfectly straight slab off the top of the log, we see what God has been doing in secret for the last 50 years. Each tree is uniquely beautiful. It has a unique grain, a variety of colors, and differing levels of heartwood. With every tree we open up, there is a simple joy in that process of discovery as we see what God has been doing. But that joyful discovery took 50 years of a tree's life to produce, 50 years of enduring wind and rain, sun and drought. The lumber we are milling now began as a seed, And without the 50 years between planting and cutting, each tree would remain a seed. Wise farmers and landowners are planting today with the hope of lumber decades on. This is the way God has made the world. When you plant a forest, you are submitting to this reality. It would be foolish to shake your fist at the heavens a month after planting and say, Won't you give me my lumber faster? Consider this, if the beautiful lumber you get from old trees only took, say, two years to grow, would it be so beautiful? For one, the growth rings wouldn't be so tight. The grain would just look dumb. It would look as though a kid had whirled a crane over it. You wouldn't even see the grain on most of the boards you cut. Also, if trees grew like weeds, the value of lumber would plummet. Scarcity produces wonder and value. You barely pay attention to what is common. But I'm speaking like a foolish person. Trees couldn't grow that way. If trees grew that fast, they would cease to be trees. God made beautiful, old, strong trees to be towering symbols of how value is produced with time, through waiting. This principle is so self-evident from nature that the pagans can recognize it. You know the saying, good things come to those who wait. That's not the Bible, but that is wisdom. The need to wait for good things is built into the fabric of reality. And we could multiply the examples from nature. 
Mothers have to patiently wait through nine months of very slow stretching for their babies to be born. And us men are told that the last month feels like three. But if gestation was three, or even six months, could you imagine the stretch marks? No good. Somewhere either side of nine months is just right. From the day you find that you are pregnant, you are put on the patient train. God puts you on it, and it pays to understand that the process of waiting for your baby is good for you and the baby. You shouldn't want it any other way. It is by his good design that gestation takes around nine months, and it would be foolish to despise that. And men, every bit of work we do requires patience. There is always a process to getting things done, and in many cases there are no shortcuts. If you want to get iron ore or gold from a mountain, you have to dig. And many people will dig for gold and find nothing. If you want to build a website, there are things you need to do, steps you need to follow. That all takes time. Work done hastily is generally low quality. And that will always put you at a disadvantage to those who are patient. Those who put their hand to the plough and put in the hours of sweat and toil that are required for producing a quality product. But patient work doesn't only produce things to sell, it produces things in us. Consider how waiting or patient work prepares a person for things to come, namely keeping wealth. Proverbs 13.11 Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Now how does this proverb work? Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Why would it matter how wealth is attained? Isn't wealth wealth? You would think it doesn't matter how a dollar is gained. A quick dollar is the same as a slow dollar. Both buy you nothing under our current economic conditions. This proverb bucks against the idea that a quick dollar is the same as a slow dollar. It tells us how wealth is gained in reality in a world where God requires waiting. It asserts that the process of gaining wealth determines who will be rich in the end, once a bit of time has passed. So why is slow money superior to fast money? Because there is a necessary preparation for holding wealth that can only be attained through waiting. Patient labor creates a good product and an understanding of what it takes to produce nice things. One of the skills gained by those who gather little by little is a true appreciation for value, an understanding of what it takes to make a dollar. There is a reason why trust fund kids have become a modern day parable. They are drains to their parents and generally considered useless to society. I wasted a lot of my youth watching these train wrecks on MTV. Rich American kids blowing their parents' wealth on reality TV. The E! Channel, I don't know if that is still a thing, was largely devoted to documenting the fall of trust fund kids and celebrities that got rich too quick. They had not learned to appreciate wealth through the regular means of hard and patient toil. In pointing this out, though, 
I'm not saying it is impossible to pass off large inheritances to your kids, to kids without experience with money. I wouldn't want my dad to hear that. It's great if you can pass on an inheritance, but every child needs to be prepared to receive their inheritance. Under normal circumstances, inheritances are given when you are older and understand how to steward it. The prodigal son received his inheritance prematurely and was uninterested in holding on to his wealth. But reality caught up with him and he needed daddy's money again. Folly was bound up in his heart and sadly, we have grown men like him today that never had that folly driven out of them. Holding on to wealth requires discipline and wisdom and these things can be built into us through experiencing slow gain, wealth grown little by little. If you are young, it is a good thing if your parents don't give you unlimited access to their riches. I hate to think of what I would have done with a substantial inheritance in my early 20s. I didn't know what wealth was for or how to use it, but I know that God has taught me with time how things work. God made the world in a particular way, and hastily gained wealth dwindles. In his kindness, God wants men and women to slowly develop into maturity, to slowly grasp the privileges and responsibilities that come with having things. So we ought not to despise slowly gain wealth. In fact, we should love it. And to us who have a small weekly paycheck, this is a hard word. I want to remind you again why we are considering wealth and work. It is because our psalm today calls on Israel to wait, and waiting is one of those fractal truths. God requires waiting all over the place. In Psalm 104, it says that all animals are waiting for God to give them their food in their due season. Again, the need to wait is woven into the fabric of reality. I've begun this sermon this way because I believe understanding the reasons behind the requirement to wait in work and in other things will help us understand the reason behind God making Israel wait for redemption. The process of waiting on the Lord, even in the case of salvation, is always for our good. Waiting is for our good. So as we are returning to our psalm, we see in verse 5 that there was a specific kind of waiting that the psalmist and later Israel were called to. It says, I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word do I wait. They were to wait for the fulfillment of his word. God's word held out hope, but the fruition of that hope would come with time. They didn't have what they hoped for yet. <clears throat> Remember the psalmist had just sung about God being forgiving. He said, with you, Yahweh, there is forgiveness. In a similar way, that watchmen wait for the sunrise in the morning, for the end of the darkness, Israel was waiting for God's forgiveness to come over the horizon they could affirm that God was forgiving, <clears throat> but the revealing of his forgiveness, in some sense, had not happened yet. 
They were hoping for it. They were looking for it. They expected to see it on the horizon. They were hoping for the revealing of the Messiah. They were waiting for the one who would be crushed for their iniquities, the one who would bear their sorrows, their depths. They trusted that God would be forgiving, but how that forgiveness would be accomplished was somewhere in their future. It was yet to be seen. They and the angels longed to look upon it, and it was not the right time for the sealing of their redemption. So they were called to wait. Peter said of the Old Testament saints, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things, which now have been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the prophets and all Israel were waiting for what we now have. They were hoping in what the prophets had announced, but we see what the prophets announced, fulfilled, there in front of us. Malachi 4.6 says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go, will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. We have seen the Son of Righteousness coming up over the horizon. We have seen how our sins were paid for in full. So if the Son has come up, is this psalm now redundant? How are we to be like the watchman? Is all the waiting over? No. As long as time exists, there will be waiting. Again, this is something that is built into the fabric of reality by God. In the passage we just read from, Peter said that there were glories to come. Glories that would come after the sufferings of the Messiah. We have seen the fulfillment of what could be called the big prophecy, the one that sealed the things we hope for, but we still wait in hope for a number of things. Uh, Romans 8 says this, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. So waiting is still required. There are a number of things we still wait for. The two things here in Romans 8 are being adopted as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Our sanctification and glorification were sealed for us at the cross, but they are not yet a reality. These things are future glories, things yet to come, and we ought to eagerly wait for them. 
Why should we eagerly wait for them? Because we are still in the flesh. We are still sinners. We still experience the pain and trouble that comes from our fallen world. Our outer man is decaying and our inner man is not yet fully renewed. But remember, if God requires us to wait this way, as it is with all waiting on the Lord, it is for our good. It is by his good design that we wait for our redemption. There is a reason why we are not raptured the moment we believe. God is preparing us for greater things with time, and we have to believe this time is necessary. We are being wisely brought to maturity. This is how Paul teaches us to wait in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we should not despise waiting. God is working something out as you wait. He is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Another way to describe waiting is faithing. One thing that faith looks like when it is in action is waiting. Faith actively trusts in God. Not only that our redemption was sealed in the past, but that the process of full redemption will be worked out over time. This is the way that sanctification has to be done, and that is slowly and methodically. We've talked about this before. Wanting our sanctification to speed up is like despising a tree for taking so long to grow. Remember, the fruit of time is much better than the soft and cheap products of haste. In the same way that a tree would cease to be a tree if it grew up quickly like a weed, quick sanctification would no longer be sanctification. God's work of sanctification, the only kind of sanctification there is, requires waiting. The Spirit works holiness into us the way that he does so that we would glorify him through the exercise of faith, hope, and patience. Instant sanctification, if there could be such a thing, would rule out the possibility of hope. For, as Romans 8 says, who hopes for what he already sees? But God loves it when men and women exercise faith and hope over time, looking to the fulfillment of his promises with full assurance, waiting on the Lord. There is a unique glory in the display of this kind of faith and contentment over time. Which leads us to consider the nature of our waiting. How should we be waiting? If you set up a camera at an intersection, you would capture all manner of waiting. If you were to review the footage, you would find some waiting patiently, others resenting the fact that they are waiting, and many others on their phones. It would be good if you could pick out the Christians in that footage. We ought to be waiting differently than the world, even at intersections. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, right? 
But if we understand the fruit of the Spirit correctly, patience will never be alone. Joyless patience, or a patience without peace, is not the kind of patience that the Spirit gives. Godly patience is not merely enduring the sovereign will of God. Godly patience understands that God is both sovereign and good. So if he calls us to wait, then it is for our good. Knowing who God is, if patience is required of us, then we can have joy in the exercising of it. Of course, this is not easy. We have a flesh that wars against the spirit. Nevertheless, this is what we are called to. We should be the kind of parents that make up a game or sing a song as we wait in the ridiculously long queue at the drive-thru. First world problems, right? We should nip every, I'm hungry, coming from the back of the van in the bud. That's not how we, as Christians, exercise patience. Hangriness is a thing I am very prone to, especially when dinner isn't ready by 6.30. When I'm hungry, I don't believe I am called to exercise that kind of patience. But I am. Hunger is no excuse. In fact, you need to be more intentional about being patient when your flesh is weak. As we conclude, I want us to think again about how we ought to be waiting on the Lord for our final redemption. Are you eagerly waiting for your glorification? Do you have an eagerness to throw off this flesh? No, actually, do you? Think about your last week. Were you waiting? Do you have an eagerness to be in the presence of your Savior? We ought to be. You can do nothing about your final salvation. It is totally out of your hands and in the hands of your faithful God. All you can do is wait. And this is what we must do. We must wait. And we must do it with eagerness. Hebrews 9 says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Christ has paid for your sins, brothers and sisters. Christ has paid for your sins, brothers and sisters. Praise God. And now we await our salvation, not with reference to your sins. They were paid for. We await our glorification. We await the removal of all that is sinful in us, we wait for the fulfilling of his word. We wait to see our Savior. It is his word that we hope for. Verse 5 of our psalm says, I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word do I wait. What he has promised will come to pass. So we should wait for its fulfillment, not like a grump in traffic waiting for a green, but like a family on a glorious road trip, full of anticipation for their holiday, not concerned about the lights, but joyfully anticipating the place that they will eventually be. Amen.